Welcome to First Pitches, where famous founders break down the very first version of their pitch so you can master yours. I'm Lolita Taub, co-founder and general partner at the Community Fund. And I'm Eric Bond, co-founder and general partner at Hustle Fund. Lolita, ready for some real talk with these founders? Sure, let's do it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. I'd like to introduce you to a team that every founder should know about. It's GS Futures. GS Futures is a new multi-stage VC fund that launched just this year, investing into teams at early seed all the way through Series D. This team spun off from the GS Group in Korea, a legendary enterprise representing assets in retail, consumer, energy, and much more. GS Futures is actively seeking and investing into great hustlers. Go to their website right now, gsfutures.vc, and tell them what you're up to. I think you'll be excited to partner with them. Berkland is the recognized leader in outsourced CFO, tax, and accounting services for startups at the emerging and growth stages. As a sponsor of First Pitches, Berkland would like to offer listeners a free finance consultation. Berkland also offers important tools on its website, a financial controls matrix, finance 101 for startups, contingency toolkits, tax and marketing calculators, and other critical resources for scaling a company. Visit berklandassociates.com slash hustle. Hey there, listeners. Hung Pham here, executive producer of First Pitches. On this episode, Eric, Lolita, and I debrief our interview with last week's special guest founder and share our thoughts, insights, and reactions. If you haven't heard last week's interview yet, I highly recommend you do so. And now, on to the show. Hey guys, it's Eric, Lolita, and Hung, here to debrief an awesome conversation that we've had with Elias Torres, the co-founder and CTO of Drift. And my goodness, we covered a wide array of topics for that episode and hearing this really unique journey for how he built this company. And the way that we began the episode, Lolita, was kind of tough. I mean, we posed a question <laughs> about, do you believe in the American dream? You uh, posed it not only to Elias, but unfairly onto your amazing <laughs> co-host, uh, Eric Bond. And we didn't even get to hear your answer. So my question for you, Lolita, to begin is, do you believe in the American dream? I do. I do believe in it. I think there are some days where it's tougher too than others. But ultimately, if I liked what Aaliyah said in terms of optimism is what carries us forward. And if we don't believe in something, we cannot achieve it. And, and so to me, I do believe in it. Look, I am, I am a story to be told. And, and it's not my story. It's actually my parents' story. I think that the American dream for my parents was to, for, for their children to have a better life, to have an education. And, and I, I wouldn't have been able to do that in, in Mexico. Uh, and I'll actually tell you a short story because I, oh, I, I was talking to my mom about this yesterday and we were talking about the American dream and she started saying, you know, what's interesting is we almost lived in Mexico. And I do remember this when I, I was in first grade, they pulled me out of first grade here in the U.S. And things had just gotten so tough that they, they thought maybe we should go back to Mexico. And so for a year, 
uh, we lived in Mexico and I didn't go to school. Not because uh, my parents didn't want me to, because they always believed, you know, they, they wanted to make sure I was an American citizen. So I would always have the opportunity. So we had gotten that checkbox. The mm. next thing was education, but things had gotten so hard uh, financially and economically in the U.S. that we moved back. And for a year, my mom tried to put me in schools uh, in Mexico, and they did not have spots because if there were any spots, they would be given to Mexican citizens. Mm. And so for a year, I didn't go to school. And my, my dad had said, Hey, hold on, you know, where they shipped everything, washer, dryer, you name it, everything. And my mom got to a point where she said, my gosh, like we want our children to have a better, a better life, to have the American dream. And if it's not going to happen here. And she literally, uh, she asked, um, her, her dad for $700 to buy a round, a, a ticket to, from, from, um, from Mexico to LAX. And she actually didn't tell him what it was for because in Mexican culture, it would be a no, no to disobey your husband. And my dad had said, you, you guys stay, I'll be there briefly. And my mom was just like, not about to have it because she's like, look, all of these things that we've done, we did them so that our children could have a better life and an education. So she takes the $700, doesn't tell her dad about it, books a flight and, and just calls my dad and says, hey, you have to pick me up at LAX tomorrow. So we come back and we're coming back to our, um, at the time my dad was living in, in a small house behind another house. And because everything had been shipped, there was no beds, nothing. But my mom's determination for us to have that better life, better education opportunity was so strong, that American dream that and in her mind, like when I asked her, like, did you really think about it like an American dream? She doesn't use the phrase, but to me, that's what it is. And to have that much hope and, and to hear that story. And I heard it for the first time, actually, Eric, because I was too young to really remember uh, that is amazing, right? Uh, I, I think I am my parents' American dream. You're saying that you heard this story really recently then? Yesterday. Goodness. Oh, wow. Wow. I saw you like, you know, almost tearing up a little bit because I, maybe it's just me imprinting because I'm tearing up a little bit <laughs> in hearing this. Um, wow. Uh, I could have been in Mexico, but thankfully I wasn't able to get into a school. <laughs> so I came here and now you get to know me. Um, but yeah. isn't that amazing? My life could have been completely different. Uh, but my mom's determination for my children are going to have a better life. Yeah. And just so the listeners know, not to say that we need to name all of your resume here, but eventually you got a scholarship to go to Andover, uh, the top uh, private school, uh, boarding school in the United States, went to USC, top pub private school in California and United States, the world. Uh, it's it's pretty amazing that it worked out for her, your mom. I'm talking about your mom, right? Like, her, like I'm not even talking about Lolita at this point. Uh, so I'm excited to meet your mom, by the way, someday, and just say like, hey, you did a good job. Tell me what you did so I can do my the same with my daughter. Uh, no, but I, but I want to kind of revert it back because I, I know it was a little bit unfair that I, I threw it at you because you even said, hey, this is not an interview with Eric. But the reason... <laughs> But the reason why I did that, Eric, was because you had expressed some pessimism, and I, I wanted you to, to to have an opportunity to share it. And I, I was really curious also to hear Elias's thoughts. And yeah. and 
And now I want to hear your reaction and have you changed your mind about the American dream within this conversation? Yeah. So just to give our listeners a little bit of color, uh, it's not just that last episode, but Lolita Hung and myself have had this conversation in different kinds of contexts in the past. And I do land on the side of more pessimism. Maybe it's actually from the, the, uh, the drama of 2020 and perhaps it's more self-awakening of just my role in this world and what I've done. But, uh, you know, I find myself on the more pessimistic end of it more, not so that like, I think around the premise that people can start from a certain station in their life and actually achieve well beyond that, even within one generation or two generations. I mean, I'm speaking to two amazing colleagues, Lolita and Hong, who are a testament to this. Right. Uh, but, uh, it's just for me, like I always felt, or I guess in the last several years, starting to feel like this is, it's just an unfair race to begin with. Right. Like if I'm at the, if we're doing a hundred yard race, I'm at like mile, I'm at like the 50 yard marker and like others are like at zero and we're like the, the starting gun start, starts at the same time for us. So I think like that kind of recognition is something, but you know, there's something that really inspired me coming out of the conversation with Elias, which is, uh, one is he set context of this is the world that I came from in Nicaragua. Look at these pictures. He literally showed us pictures of the revolution, his little cute, like four-year-old self, like with the, with like the baby <laughs> belly in front of like his mama's Datsun. And his little hat. Yeah. Right. Like his cute little hat. I mean, like, I was just like, oh my gosh, I see my son in this guy. Right. And then, um, you know, and then when he sort of talks about like, when you compare this to what, I, what, what the world is today here, it's no comparison, right? And, and and I think like I, because I was born and raised in Michigan and like, you know, I kind of take it for granted just like life in the United States, like uh, it, it brought new empathy. But there's another kind of takeaway I got and Hung, I'd love for your reaction first on this too, which is like, I think that Elias just fundamentally believes in the concept of a more perfect union, right? In himself, he's like, I'm just partway in my journey. I don't know like where it's gonna go, but I know it's exciting. Uh, but for even like America, I just got this sense of just like, yeah, it's hard. It's not perfect, but we're striving towards a more perfect union. Like our forefathers had set forth, um, you know, Hong, you come from immigrant background as well. Um, I don't know if you have reactions to Lolita's question, uh, question, or even, uh, um, I guess what we're discussing right now. Yeah. I think the one thing I enjoy about this interview, um, and, and this debrief as well is, is in previous interviews, a lot of what speakers would talk about, um, I would relate to some of my experiences. I think in, in this, this episode, I, I think a lot about my parents and mm. their journey. Um, so they immigrated from Vietnam right after the war by boat, took them three tries. First try, the boat sank. Um, second try, they got caught, uh, were thrown into jail. Uh, so the third try, they made it over here. So it was my parents. Um, my mom was pregnant with me. Um, we had four other siblings with them. And then the youngest sibling at the time, they left with my aunt because he was too young to make the trip. And so they don't talk about it much. I think over the years, they like, I don't know much about the story about what happened like during the trip over here or even, you know, what was it like for them when they got here? Um, but they went through a lot. I just remember like they would tell me stories about how they, they were here. They were picking fruit in the farms when they first got here. They just left me in a basket under a tree. And then uh, I think a couple of years later, my parents um, moved over to Oregon where my dad began working as a, a furniture delivery man. And then from there, he just, he just learned to trade. 
and uh, ended up opening um, a couple of furniture stores. So like that's their American dream, which is to have a better life, to give their children a better life. That's amazing, Hung. Thank you so much for sharing. I, I actually have a different but very similar story with, with my, my dad when he first came here. Um, I don't know if you, you're familiar with the term coyote. Mm, yes. but, Can you explain it, please? A coyote is uh, someone who, who helps uh, folks cross the border illegally. <laughs> and my dad, the first time he came, he, he got thrown out of the country a couple times. But the first time, he was 16, uh, no money, nothing. And he, th- there's this, this phrase that, that Mexicans will use, el norte, the north. And there's this uh, association with a better life in general. And so he had come here, he, he wanted to come here for a better life for himself as well. And he ended up getting to Tijuana, doesn't know the language, doesn't know anything. He, he didn't even finish elementary school. And he tries to find a coyote who will get him across the border, but he doesn't have money. So he ends up being his indentured servant um, for some time. Oh my goodness. Uh, and and um, then after that, he still couldn't scrape uh, enough money because he was basically an indentured servant. So he lived in, in abandoned cars in the border of Tijuana and San Diego. And eventually he did get enough money to pay his, his way to freedom. And he, he, with a bunch of other folks, um, crossed the, the border through a sewer tunnel and he crawled his way into America. And he, I still remember he said that it was, he just felt like he had accomplished such a great task when he, they, they came out of the manhole and they saw, I think it was a Taco Bell <laughs> and wow. they were all really dirty and they, they just went in there and, you know, cleaned up and actually it wasn't a Taco Bell. And I remember correctly, it was a, a Jack in the box because ever since then he always had some sort of, um, fond memory of Jack in the Box because it was the first place he, he went into in the U.S. It's where he went to wash his hands, his face, and, and try to tidy up after after that journey. And, and you know, the, the, the story is really long, but at the end of the day, it was a struggle to get here. And then he also went and, and picked fruit um, in, in the fields, grapes, and apples, migrant, farmer, um, and, and also then w- ended up working at a factory and making doors in, mm. in LA in South Central Los Angeles. And that's where eventually I was born. Incredible. I feel like you guys each deserve, uh, your own episode of, uh, <laughs> to, to talk more about this journey. Um, it's- that's what Elias, that's what Elias brought out on us, right? Like, because he's being so real and he's, he's talking about like what reality is like for, for many of us. And what I love about him is that he, he wants to pay it forward and he wants us all to share our stories. And I was so inspired by that. Um, uh, I don't know. Yeah. What, what about you guys? What, what do you, didn't you feel like, yeah, I should probably share my story. I mean, vulnerability begets vulnerability. This is one of the wonderful gifts of doing this project together, guys, is just that we have somehow found in our first season these guests who are just great about bringing their true selves you know, to the conversations. And it, it, I think this is why our debriefs have turned into probably much more of a personal format than we had otherwise anticipated. Uh, you know, we're, we, we do talk about the show and how great our guests are and the lessons that we've learned. But, um, you know, this, this is 
some of the most fun that I've had, at least in, in, in terms of uh, this project to date. But, you know, like, here's the thing that I'd like to try to reconcile Lolita is on privilege. So on the surface, when you look at Leah's stories, yours, whatever, right? Like, um, definitely coming from humble beginnings, no privilege. And then when I hear the drift story, especially the fact that their first pitch was no first pitch is the most privileged thing I've ever heard of just like, look, we had track record. We kicked ass and ground, grounded, grinded really hard for like a decade. And then by the time we were ready to raise drift with basically just no idea what we're going to do, two people, David and Elias, CRV came and gave us $10 million after one lunch. And I'm like, you know, big time claps, just like, wow. Like that, that is like ridiculous levels of uh, privilege earned at that point. Um, you know, we did our best, I think, to expose like this story between then and then and then and then, I suppose. But it, it was like, it was really interesting to, it, it, I don't know, I, I just got a cognitive dissonance. I'm not sure if I have a question here, but I'm curious to hear your reaction uh, when, when you sort of got some of that context. Yeah. Hung, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Um, I think at the surface, it, it does sound like privilege because it's pretty unheard of that you would get a $10 million check and not have to pitch. But I think if you dig deeper into the interview with what um, Elias shared, I mean, it's you just nurture relationships. Um, yeah. I'm here because I've nurtured this relationship with Eric for like seven years. And, you know, I'm fortunate that I get to meet Lolita through this. Um, so I can understand how something that, that may look like privilege um, but really isn't. It's it's something they've you know worked hard to earn, and it's something that they've well deserving of it. Yeah, that's so. I I definitely I know that Elias really liked the first and only no pitch pitch uh, episode, <laughs> but I, I I mean my reaction was was what I what I shared live, which is I don't see this as a overnight that one lunch um, conversation. I do know that there is this myth of overnight success. And, and I, I think that that just does not exist for many of us. And for Elias and David, I mean, he said, right, that they had known each other at least five years with CRV. And then David had known them for, for I think, over a decade. And that kind of relationship, I, I don't see it as overnight. And I am certain, I, I think Elias was very humble and I'm very certain that he he put his nose to the grinder like the whole way through and that it was not um, so much of a privilege and, and more of hard earned opportunity that yeah. he was able to nourish through relationship management and, 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 and results, not not just relationship management, but but in listening. I think one thing that he he's talked about that I really liked was look, some sometimes we get really stubborn about the things that we want to do and how we want to do them, especially when it comes to building businesses and solving problems. And he he picked that up really quickly. And that was some of the advice he got he gave, right? It's like, hey, you've got to do what works. You've got to be persistent. You've got to build relationships with people because that's who you you do stuff with and who funds you and who buys from you. That's what I heard. And I heard I work really hard to make to make that happen and then to pay it forward at the end because that's just part of me. I'm, I'm curious, um, Lolita and Eric, since you're both uh, angel investors. So for a lot of your early investments, how much of it was because you just had this relationship with this founder that you knew for quite some time and regardless of the idea, you just felt like I, I 
you know, I have a good, I have a good feeling about this person. I'm going to invest in them. Um, right. I'm happy to, to start with that. Yeah. Okay. yeah go so, for it. So in fund one, I'd say we index very heavily at the beginning of our relationships. And the primary reason for that was we had no deal flow, right? We were starting a fund from scratch. Uh, no one knew what hustle fund was. They may have heard of Elizabeth, but definitely not Eric. And, uh, so, you know, yeah, we had to work really hard through our own existing angel investment founders and um, those that we knew in the beginning to get things kickstarted. But really quickly, we understood, I think, a, an important thing, which was a problem with that was that me and Elizabeth, when we were getting started, were too similar. We, our backgrounds were very similar. Parents are doctors. She grew up in like a tawny kind of suburb in San Francisco. I grew up in a tawny suburb of Michigan. We both went to Stanford, all that stuff, right? And so we were finding the same types of founders over and over and over again in our network. And that's fine. Like some of them turned out to be great. Some of them didn't. <laughs> but like it, that's, that's kind of where we began with. The thing that we quickly realized though was just like, I think the conclusion, um, I, th- I think like a thesis that like the three of us really deeply share, which is that great founders look like anyone and come from anywhere, Full stop, right? And if we were going to just continue to invest in the same Stanford graduates over and over again, we're going to be blinding ourselves from great founders elsewhere. We're going to be making less money as a fund because we are positioning ourselves dangerously to be not inclusive. So that's when we started to put in the work to try to reach out to communities outside of us, put in checks and balances to try to in, in some ways, like give more and more as much as possible, equal playing field for those who are warm intros as much as cold intros. And this is the work that I think I'm most proud of so far in year three of Hustle Fund is that now, like, I don't know anyone. <laughs> like, it's, it's just uh, like, it's, it's a really, really like big pool of founders that I get to work with that I don't have necessarily prior relationships with. And I can try to listen to their ideas first, right? Um, so... Uh, yeah, that's me pitching Hustle Fund. Uh, Lolita, why don't you go next? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm with you. I mean, I think your ethos is, is what attracted me to, to you, Elizabeth, the whole Hustle Fund crew, because I do see you guys putting in the work. Um, I forgot your question, Hung, because I was like inspired by, by Eric. What, what was it? Was it? Can you repeat it? Uh, sure. So I meant to ask how many of your earlier deals when you first started off um, ah, okay. were about relationships more than the idea itself? Yeah. So that's such a great question. None. <laughs> you have to understand, right? I When you look at a lot of underestimated founders or, or investors that come from underestimated backgrounds, we're starting from scratch. So it's all net new, and we're typically the only ones in our ecosystem, in our communities, to be the first to graduate from college, from high school even, um, let alone have like a, like a very well-cohesive set of ecosystem founders to, to be connected with from the start. So we just, I just started from scratch, honestly. And, and I, I'm so grateful to Elias's point in, in the interview about technology enabling us to be more aware of each other and connect to those that may not be in our circles. And I'm grateful for, for the skill set that I was able to, to gather in my operating career, especially early on in sales, because it's all about being curious. It's all about getting to know people, being authentically curious and, and being able to, to think about how can I serve someone and, 
And then that has led to many amazing relationships with founders. But to be honest with you, sometimes like some of the founders that I've funded, I didn't know for more than a few months. So I, I like this 24 month thing, but sometimes I'm just like, I really, I like what Elia said also about at the beginning, uh, early stage investment is a lot about the investing in people. And so sometimes I just, I'm like, oh, I really need to get to know this person over a period of time. And there are times where I'm just like, nope, this person's going to kill it. I have had these conversations over a series of a couple months. Let's do it. Um, okay, Lolita. Well, I got a question for you. Uh, and you don't need to name the people or the company. Can you tell, tell us a little bit more about your very first angel investment? Like, what did that process look like for you? Yeah, no. So, so my very first angel investment was actually done with portfolio. Hmm. Uh, so I actually did it in a group. Uh, where my money was actually being used uh, to to fund an investment. Prior to that, uh, my 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 start was really getting into volunteering with angel groups and um, being part of due diligence committees and just kind of learning the ropes from ob- observation and learning and doing the grunt work. Um, and then um, when Trish Costello started Portfolio. She launched with, um, I think she had one fund before this one, but she had an enterprise uh, fund, a portfolio enterprise fund, and she asked me to be an LP. And I love this concept because she's basically bringing all these women investors to fund and an, a fund, but essentially act like an angel uh, because you're coming in and you do everything in a group. So you have a portfolio has these funds where there's leads and then there's the LPs um, slash angels is how I, I would consider it. And, and so it was more of a process. It was more of a learning process and being like, you know what, let me learn about the process and see how this goes. So, um, that, that was, that was the first experience. And so I just went into it, listening, observing and saying, okay, well, I hope this was a good deal. Cause we just all agreed to it and it sounded good to me like the founder, um, and that's, that was the first, the first deal that I did. It was kind of, uh, I'm just part of this experience and I loved it because I got to learn from those who had been doing it for a while. Um, and I'm really grateful because if you do it all by yourself, uh, starting out, I think it can be more overwhelming and you might just end up gambling as opposed to being really thoughtful about the companies that you're investing in. So I'm grateful for that first angel experience in a group. And something that you and Elias share now is um, you're pulling up the community, right? To do the same, to participate, to be funded, to be the funders. Um, how cool, right? I mean, like, you guys have that in common. There's, there's no question there. It's just a cool comment, right? <laughs> More to come on that later. <laughs> More to come. Um, I want to talk to you both actually about, I think, uh, a mystery that was solved in the course of this conversation. We were looking at the research notes, Hung, that you had put together about the departure from HubSpot. And all three of us were like, why the hell did David yeah. and Elias quit two months before the IPO? And what a really fun response. Um, actually, Hung, do you want to share what um, uh, Elias shared? Like, was the reason and, and your reaction? And Lily, do you the same? I missed that first part that he was sharing. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> well, actually, Lolita, then you start. Do you want to <laughs> recap like what he, what he yeah, said? Yeah, yeah. So basically, I, I mean, just recapping on what you're saying, Eric. Yeah, I was really wowed when we saw that HubSpot was about to IPO and why would Elias and his and David just leave to start a company when obviously they were going to leave a lot of money on the table. And I, I, I was pleasantly surprised by Elias's answer. He, Same. I mean, he was just all about integrity, right? He wanted to make sure his company he was about to launch was going to have a clean start. He really believed in himself and his co-founder. Uh, and, and they just decided to do the right thing. So there would be no misinterpretation of whether there had been overlap or any kind of legal liability and just being straight up honest about, hey, we're starting something. So we're going to step aside and go do that um, and make it public. And, and I, I thought that was so honorable. Honestly, I was just like, yes, integrity is, is, is so important. Um, but having said so, I, I was also thinking like, well, how much money did he leave on the table? Because I might have reconsidered that. Um, I think it's interesting, especially because I know Elias has a family and had a family then, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, curious to hear your your reaction, Hung. Yeah, I um, very much the same. I, I know when he shared it, I was just like, wow. Um, I don't know if I could do the same in his, his position. Uh, <laughs> just because when I think about my family and, and making sure you know they're taken care of, it's a tough one. But I also understand if he has something bigger than himself that he he believes in, he has to do it the right way. Um, you wouldn't want to make a decision now that you're gonna regret you know ten years later. So I can I can understand why he did that. But again, it's a tough decision to make. It's so I try to do a little bit of uh, back pocket math in my head of like how much did you leave on the table. And I'm thinking that, okay, the company goes public. Usually there's a six month to one year lockup before you can uh, invest in sh- and sell some of your shares. Uh, he was likely in a VP, SVP kind of position. Same with David, they're senior guys. Um, so millions is my guess. Millions of bucks, right? And um, the, the really cool thing about that is, uh, so in conversations that I have with my wife, uh, she and I come from a pretty different backgrounds. So her family was was also um, uh, coming from really, really humble means. And actually, she kind of suffered through that her entire childhood. And uh, one of the things that she mentioned about, like, the differences between my parents' immigration journey and hers was just, like, in terms of the circumstances, it's just, like, it's so easy for you, Eric. This is my wife, Beatrice, now speaking. Uh, in Eric's voice, it's just like it's so. It's like in some ways, like inevitable or like much easier for you to like take this kind of risk mindset because you grew up in abundance, right? And I grew up in scarcity. And by the way, that kind of trauma lasts for the rest of your life. To like it, like learn how to condition yourself out of scarcity mindset into abundance mindset to take the right kind of risks. When I look at that little four-year-old boy in Nicaragua in a black and white photo, Buddha belly with a cute hat in front of like uh, an armed militia right in the back in the background right i'm like this dude is taking abundance mentality risks i don't get it that's the comment i don't get it yeah well you know what eric now it all makes sense i remember our first conversation you actually asked me this question this is how this is how eric starts relationships by the way <laughs> asking the simple questions in life uh, i get it 
you've got to be hopeful. You've got to be optimistic because the, some of us don't have the luxury of being pessimistic. Mm. We just don't. And, and I think some, some of us, it takes a little bit more time uh, than others. I can tell you when I left IBM, uh, I should have told Elias, I also worked at IBM. Oh, right. That's right. Uh, but, when I, but when I left IBM, um, my mom said, I, she was just like, why? She started crying. Why would you do that? Why would you give up certainty and a great company and all these sorts of things and great pay to go and start something yourself? Um, and, and I think that my mom has, to some degree, had a scarce mentality um, at certain points because, because you don't want to lose more. You don't want to suffer more. You don't want your family to suffer more. But at some point, she, you know, now she's just like, I don't know what you do. But I think you're going to become a billionaire. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> too. I agree with your mom. <laughs> so, and that's the thing. Like, at some point, I think we, we have to just make that decision of like, well, it, we either go big or go home because sometimes you don't have the luxury. Like, if I fail, what happens to my family? And so I do have to take measured risk. And we've talked about this where I have to have my side hustles, my day job, and, you know, do multiple things to make things work, to live the dream. But I'm going to do what it takes, but I am going to definitely make big risks because my dad and my mom did not go through all the stuff they went through for me to then be scared of failure. Mm. It's beautiful. Um, so let's, uh, maybe we can wrap with uh, something that's uh, less existentially heavy <laughs> and, and like, uh, and this conversation I've enjoyed so much because again, you two always open up. Uh, so freely. And I, I really do hope that our audience has a better understanding of our own values as, as part of this process of listening, listening to season one of first pitches. Uh, you know, I, I really liked the, the lead nurturing or relationship nurturing advice that Elias shared, which is like, he got advice from his mentor, his board member, uh, the AT&T CEO and chairman, I think uh, that just spend three minutes a day, you know, messaging the people uh, in, in your network that matters and it's a simple habit, but it will produce incredible dividends in terms of uh, just keeping those relationships warm. Um, Hung, I'd like to start with you and then Lolita, and then I guess I can end too, which is like, do you guys have hacks like that too? Where it's just like almost like that simple, but just yields huge results? Um, I think for me, it's just making little appointments on my calendar. Uh, whenever I feel like there's someone I haven't checked in with in a while, I just put it on a calendar so I get notification and then just make sure I check in with them. And then, and even then, um, sometimes I forget. So I have to be, be make sure I'm, I'm very mindful about that. Hmm. I want to hear your answer first, Eric. All right, fine. I, get, I usually <laughs> get to cheat by asking the question. So I actually have something kind of similar to what Aaliyah shared. So I'm going to start adopting the three-minute thing, which I think is really cool. Just text a couple people that you like and say, I'm thinking of you, you know? Uh, I'll try to do that tomorrow. Maybe a little lead in hung. I'll start with you too. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, but uh, for me, um, so I, I found actually sometime in my 20s that, uh, you know, yeah, the concept of keeping leads warm is really important, but I was starting to get like hundreds and then eventually thousands of people that I want to stay in touch with. It's just not possible, I felt in my mind at least, to keep in touch. So what I ended up doing is uh, every Christmas at the end of the year, I put together a once a year newsletter list 
Lolita, mm. you'll be on it this year. Hung, you've been on it for several Aww. years. Where I just do a BuzzFeed like listicle that talks about the things that I feel blessed about, right? So it's usually like mm-hmm. birth of the baby or like we moved to this new thing or I got a new job, whatever it is, right? It's just the highlights. And I just try to keep it optimistic. And then I um, always at the end provide my uh, most recent contact information, how people can reach me. And then uh, an ask, which is, can you just send one sentence of what you're up to in life? And that goes out to thousands of people once per year. And the goal of it is just like, now you know what I've been up to. You can share if you want back. But at least like we kind of kept each other in our orbit. And uh, it's a really easy thing. It's actually not that easy to do. Like figuring out like how to clean the list is becoming harder and harder. But the the summary of the year part of it is really fun because it's just picture, couple sentences, picture, a couple sentences. You do that a few times, you're done. It's really engaging and fun. I love that. And I am so honored that i'll be in the next one. Oh yeah you're on that list it's gonna be not double opt-in i'm just throwing you on the list don't don't hit uh, the spam <laughs> button please <laughs> is there is there an opt-out there's no opt-out once you're on the list you're on the list <laughs> <laughs> oh man gdpr right um no we're not telling gdpr yeah no, no is, europeans go ahead no, you're, no, you're, eric's like oh shit <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, okay, we can scrap that because I said a bad word. I don't know if we're allowed to say bad words. But no, we can say bad words. We say lots of bad words. Okay, yeah. all right. Um, so I, I again, come from a sales background. I, USC was so big on networking, all mm. about the Trojan family and networking and so on and so, so on and so forth. So I got these a lot of networking hacks um, coming out of college. And I was really grateful because before that I, I thought networking was bothering people and asking them for things and like, just, I don't know, the first time you met them. And then, and then I learned the, the value of giving and getting. And, and I think there's so much to that and not just like random contacting people, but having something of value to share. And, and, and for me, it would be very valuable to listen about and, and read through your year synopsis of the great things that, that you go through and went through, Eric. So I'm excited about that. Um, but the way that, that it, it's really evolved how I keep in touch with people and foster relationships, but certainly a newsletter is something that I started doing, I don't know, several years ago. And it's now evolved into my Substack newsletter where I both share what's going on with me and I share a lot of value because to me, again, I really believe in, in giving and, and I think in the way that I give, I hope to attract the people that are interested in the stuff that I'm talking about. And it, it actually very much works out. So on any given week, I'm probably meeting 10 to 20 new people somehow. And they may or may not be on my calendar, but I'm keeping, you know, and how do you keep up with such a huge volume? Well, newsletters one. Um, I try to be as active as I can on Twitter and um, scrolling through, uh, I have lists actually. I use Twitter lists and I'll oh, go cool. through. So you're on one of my, my Twitter lists, Eric. Oh, so, I can, so I can know what you're going, what, what you're doing, what's going on <laughs> in your life. No, but I do. So I can say like, oh, okay, I, I, I know what's going on. And then I engage whenever I think it's authentic to engage. Um, and then I'll also, uh, with certain people, I have quarterly calls. Neat. So those are my three, my three things, newsletter, social media, and quarterly calls. Great advice, both of you, all three of us. Um, well, uh, just to wrap things up, just a reminder to our listeners, we are debriefing an awesome interview that we just had with Elias Torres. 
co-founder and CTO of Drift, the conversational marketing platform that you should check out at drift.com. And uh, as always, guys, fun to talk about life, lessons that we learned. Thanks, Lolita and Hung. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to First Pitches. For show notes and more, visit our website, firstpitches.com, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode. First Pitches is produced and edited by Hung Pham. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to rate our show and leave us a review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. Smart companies run on NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, you'll have the visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need, all in one place. You'll have the agility to compete with anyone, work from anywhere, and run your whole company right from your phone. Join over 21,000 companies who trust NetSuite to make it happen. Get your free guide and schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash first pitches. Frank Rimmerman is a public accounting firm whose history is closely intertwined with that of Silicon Valley. With humble beginnings similar to so many startups, Frank Rimmerman was formed with a desire to serve the entrepreneurial and venture communities of the Valley, supporting those who think outside the box. This is what the Frank Rimmerman team told us at first pitches. Even we agree accounting work can be boring. That's why we chose to work with some of the most innovative and creative people, people who are changing the world around us every day. Their excitement fuels our passion and determination to grow and serve this special community. Frank Rimmerman is the entrepreneurial CPA firm. Check them out at frankrimmerman.com slash startup services.